Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On the Sunday of the Fathers of the First Council, we have this great Gospel reading which identifies our Savior as God. That He is one with the Father. But He uses that to pray that those who are called to be His church on this earth will also be one in a similar fashion. That they may be one as we are. We know that God lives in a mysterious way and that for his life, for his existence, really all of our human words and language break down. They fail. And yet, from the beginning, men have spoken of God because they love him. And because, in a mysterious way, he speaks with us. And so there is a kind of validation, a kind of legitimizing of anthropomorphic, that is, man-like, human-like language. In his mysterious way, God lives as a community of persons. And in a mysterious way, we human beings are called to live as a community of persons. You have all seen, because it's been on the covers of every kind of book, from something published by the Baptist to something published by us, of the icon that is called the Holy Trinity, or sometimes the hospitality of Abraham and Sarah. The three angels are seated at an altar table, at a table where they are to be served by Abraham and Sarah. And the three angels are making very restrained very subdued gestures. There is the blessing being offered and the acceptance of the blessing by the others. In the Bible, there is from time to time the reference to the Savior, to the Messiah, as the pre-eternal counsel of the Father. He is also called the wisdom, the Sophia of the Father. He is called the Logos of the Father. So we see that there is a kind of primacy on the part of the Father who offers and a kind of acceptance of the Father's counsel by the other persons of the Holy Trinity. And yet all of them are equal. The reason one thinks about these things is that it is the same in human relationships. The ideal relationship that has been laid down from time immemorial, for example, in a marriage, in a family, with a husband and a wife, a father and a mother, is that a kind of initiative rests on the man, on the husband and the father of the family. And therefore, a kind of acceptance is built into the role of the wife and mother. And yet, as in the Holy Trinity, they are both equal. It is in their equality that there is a kind of division of role and function, and that the health of the individual members of the family, and the health of the family itself, its 
to use the word in its technical meaning, its sanity, rests on everyone performing his responsibilities, discharging his responsibilities in a good mind and in a good heart. Not reluctantly, not as a result of force or coercion, but as a loving service offered to God. All of these things came into play the day that a priest who was raised in Alexandria, but we must always make a distinction here so that we are not unfair to the Alexandrians. This priest whose name was Arius and was the father of the first great heresy which the church had to struggle with, Arianism, though an Alexandrian by birth, was trained theologically in the city of Antioch and is more a representative of the theological position of the Antiochenes than of the Alexandrians. Well, he began to teach and to preach a Christ other than the Christ encountered in the church and in the church's gospels. This Christ was subordinate to the Father, not in the, his son-likeness, the fact that he was the son of a father, but uh, subordinate in his very existence. There was something derivative about him, sub, something secondary. And uh, this was, of course, once an idea gets out of the bag, uh, new ideas become attached to it and it's pushed a little further, pushed a little further. It's the same thing that happened in the Protestant Reformation. You know, for a long time after Martin Luther revolted against Rome, he was uh, devoted to the Virgin Mary and kept all of the great Marian feasts with great love, even though he was a Lutheran. It was later that other forces became unleashed within the Reformation and uh, gradually Luther, the father, was instructed by his own progeny and pulled away from the Catholic apprehension of Mary's role. That aside, the same thing happens with the, uh, the presbyter Arius, and he himself is rendered more and more radical. He uh, is not content to simply uh, have certain thoughts of his own, which he keeps to himself, but he begins to recruit to his way of looking at Christ, uh, the Christ whom he would like to uh, see, uh, uh, recruiting certain bishops and other priests and through them the laity. So he throws down the gauntlet, so to speak, in the, uh, in the path of the truly orthodox bishops. Now, as we always say, what is the essence of all heresy? What it boils down to is the preaching of a Christ other than the Christ of the Gospels. There is a distortion, sometimes rather slight, sometimes rather pronounced, but there is a distortion of the Christ of the Gospels and therefore of the Gospels themselves. One may not always immediately see how and why such a heresy could have such a deleterious effect, but the Church, in her inspired wisdom, can see where this is going, whatever heresy it is, and wants to uh, cut it off in the bud before it becomes developed and begins uh, like a remorseless wolf to disturb the flock and to kill the sheep. So it was that the bishops, the truly orthodox bishops and the Alexandrian patriarchate began to challenge Arius and tell him that he was wrong. At first, of course, they simply 
argued with him, remonstrated with him, acted as apologists for the Christ of the Gospel. This had the effect, as it often does, alas, in human conditions, of hardening um, hardening areas in his own self-opinion. And the word heresy comes from a Greek verb, areo, I choose for myself, areome, or uh, even uh, I, I insist upon my own way or I insist upon my own opinion. All of that is included in the mix of the meaning of the Greek term from which we in English have our term heresy uh, and heretic and heretical. So uh, truly uh, Arius chose his own path over against the Church's apprehension of the Christ of the Gospel. And uh, a great many people who apparently were rather uh, foggy and fuzzy in their thinking about the Gospel and about the Christ of the Gospel followed him. And this is why it became such a big issue. Ultimately, a number of emperors uh, also joined in with this heresy and, of course, brought their considerable influence and prestige and authority and actual the substance of real power to bear in behalf of the Arians, so that um, Orthodox bishops like St. Athanasius the Great of Alexandria, out of a 30 or a 31-year reign as Patriarch of Alexandria, spent an enormous proportion of those years in exile, on the run, on the lamb, in hiding. And there are exciting stories about narrow escapes that he has as the emperors, the Aryan emperors, soldiers go hunting for him. Well, the 318 holy fathers that are gathered in the city of Nicaea, which is across the bay on the Asian side of, uh, of uh, the area around Constantinople, the uh, fathers who gathered there were led by a bishop from Spain whose name was Josios of Cordoba. And Josios was a very orthodox Catholic bishop, and he provided a good leadership, a good presidency of the Council of Nicaea. And the fathers there, using the gospel that we have heard just now, this morning, from the deacon, uh, the, the clergy there, the bishops assembled, affirmed that Christ and the Father are one, that he is part of a Godhead which includes, is inclusive of three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all of this, of course, is incredibly important to us because our salvation is woven into the texture of all of these great things and we don't think about it enough, we don't think about it very much, and so we don't often see uh, how all this works together, conspires for our eternal salvation, but it does. And the witness of the saints and the martyrs and the great ascetic fathers and the great theological fathers, the theologians, the, all that composes what we call holy tradition, all of that affirms the, uh, the indispensable importance of these great things. And you and I can profitably spend a good deal of our time reading the fathers who were struggling and wrestling to find not the truth, they had the truth, but to find the right word in which to express that truth, which they would then speak the truth with love, which they did. 
they gave Arius, who was present at the uh, council, every opportunity to understand the mind of the church on these great matters. Arius continued of his own self-opinion, although he pretended for a while to embrace orthodoxy and abandon his uh, own uh, personal heresies. In the end, he was unable to relieve himself of his own self-opinion, and uh, he died, alas, outside of the communion of the church, and he died under rather terrible circumstances. Well, this was a victory of the church, but it didn't last because Arian ideas were out there, and there were many people who had enlisted enthusiastically in these ideas, and it didn't go away. So it took yet another council to uh, make the matter plain and clear to one and all that if you want to be an Orthodox Christian, to understand the Gospel as an Orthodox Christian and to have the Orthodox understanding of God, this is what you believe. And the decrees of those councils are defining. We talk about the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, which is the creed that we will say a little later in this liturgy, the creed that we all have said when we were baptized, the creed that we hear all the time, I believe in one God, and so on and so forth. Well, uh, that comes out of the turmoil of these decades in which the Church was struggling for her integrity in the face of very powerful opposition, trying to pull the Church into uh, false belief and false witness. May God grant that the uh, intercessions of these holy 318 fathers who did their job so well will have the effect of you and me doing our job well. Amen.